Hello and welcome to the Research Connection Podcast, the show that brings current expertise and cutting-edge research and connects it with users in the community. Hi everyone, welcome back. We're here again with Tim and Paul and Jackie, take it away. Uh, the connection between hockey culture and how it is part of, we would all, or most of us would recognize it as part of the fabric of Canadian society right? And I sort of think that there's a connection between that culture and how it stays and the resilience of the narrative and how it stays as part of who we are as Canadians. And what implications does that have for hockey players, for girls and boys coming up through the hockey system and learning to play the game? Well, how do we change something that, I mean, you alluded to it, that hockey is part of our, you know, our fabric. So how do you change something that's fundamental to our national identity. I think the players themselves, you know, they've evolved, they've changed. I think, it, you know, it, they change as society changes because, I mean, just like what Tim said, you know, they are part of the world. Mm-hmm. Right? And it's just that, you know, has it changed in the dress room? Yeah. Yeah. But at the same token, at least, you know, 19, 14-year-old boys. So you put 19, 14-year-old boys together, we're, they're going to do 14-year-old boy things. Mm-hmm you know, and behave like 14-year-old boys um, in the dress room, outside the dress room. You know, I hope they represent themselves, you know, and I always say in a manner that would make your mom proud. You know, rightly or wrongly, that's just, you know, the language that I use because we don't ever want to embarrass ourselves, right? So can it change? Just like what we're saying, I think it takes time. Yeah, I think I think that's a, appropriate that we see the game moving from, you know, the pastime to a way of life. And there's a section in Brandon the neighborhood that they're renaming the streets, so they're going to name the streets after former Wheat King hockey players. So you can start to see how deeply ensconced mm-hmm, hockey mm-hmm. is within our culture. Mm-hmm. But one of the things that some of the interviews that I have with former pros, they all played for the same captain. So these were individual interviews. But they said the image of Lanny McDonald as their captain allowed them to be a different kind of man. And I thought when we provide different images of the person beside us, that you can be that way. This one guy looked, he said, I never thought I could be that way. I could be gentle. I could be kind. I didn't have to have a persona or a bravado. But I would say, and maybe it'd be interesting, Paul, when you're in the top six, so if you're a goal scorer, you have a different latitude on how masculine you have to be. If you're on the bottom, third and fourth line, you have a different role to play. So you kind of, you have these... If you're Sidney Crosby, my job in the fourth line is to protect your space. So you can see that different bodies have different value, which is problematic if you're trying to earn a living and you're being paid quite handsomely for it. So I think your questions are really good ones, Jackie, but how do you, what's the impetus for change? How and, and there's other structures in society that hold this narrative in place too. I mean, Hollywood has, I mean, there's other places we go that prop up hyper-masculine ideal. It's not just a hockey rink. Then you look at the military, like they had that sort of hyper masculine, but they have done changes to become more inclusive, etc. Yeah, I did some. Yeah, I did some work around the military, and they've, okay. they've hired. You know, they've had sensitivity training, and sometimes they're colossal disasters. Okay. You can you can change the information that's coming in, mm-hmm. but changing the being of men, I, I think it's it's a longer <laughs> it's a longer so process. Yeah. So that goes back to the resilience. Does the number of women in the game? Make change. When the also game last year, they had women partake in the skills competition. I don't remember the name of the woman who did the skating around the rink, but oh, she was the, yeah. had the second fastest time. I'm just wondering the impact of seeing a woman skate a lot faster than a lot of the men who are the top in the in the profession. 
it, that does start to turn the gaze to, to what, what are women doing and what, how, how might we learn from the women's game? Because for a long time, it seemed like the women were trying to, like it was the other way around, right? So I'm, I'm wondering, I don't know all of you, when you see women performing in a way that I've, in my lifetime, I've never seen that kind of speed and strength mm-hmm. in a woman. Mm-hmm. Well, I think, you know, the evolution of the women's game, especially since when was it, 1990, the first women's world championship. So mm-hmm. I think we're looking at, you know, two generations of, for lack of a better word, like an, an elite level women's hockey player. Um, I mean, it's it's got to make a difference. That's interesting. Yeah, that's interesting. Because yeah. one of these pros, when, you, when I was asking to be part of the research, he said, well, what are you looking for? And I said, well, things like in the dressing room or in the trainer's room that you're making fun of each other for being soft. He says, oh, every day. That's part of our discourse, that we critique each other on playing through injury, playing when you're sick, playing like that's still thing. Like, and these guys were talking about getting, you know, cortisone shots. They need to stay in the lineup. It's their livelihood, right? So I, I, there's yeah. something that I just I keep bumping up against this how resilient it is to repel kinds of ways that we might think about being done differently. Is is the willingness to stay in the lineup though? Like, is there anybody here that's not gone to work when they're feeling under the weather? Like, <laughs> You know, it's just so happens that, you know, as a teacher, when I'm feeling under the weather, oh, I got a cold, but I still go to work. It's a little bit different than, you know, yeah. someone who's a cortisone shot in their shoulder mm-hmm. so they can get through the game. I, but it's still going to work, mm-hmm. you know, and still being at less than 100%. I think we all do it, you know, to some respect. Yeah, I guess it's to one's peril, though, right? Yeah. Some of these guys had said, one thing I would have done differently in my career is I would have taken more time off after injury. Mm-hmm. But can you only see that in retrospect? That's the, there's the center to me. It was like, okay, we can talk about these things in the rearview mirror. But when you're living it, you would you you suit it up, and now you've got three back surgeries and mm-hmm. memory problems, and you're fifty. That you know, like, yeah. I I was part of it, so it's not to can you know, mm-hmm. I can't believe it. I absolutely did that. <laughs> you did the same. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. you know, hit mm-hmm. things from coach or the trainer so that you could get back into the lineup. Yeah. One hundred percent. There's, there's in the pros. These guys were paying off trainers. Is it the fear that other people will judge you if you're seen as being soft, or is it more that you really want to be there and you'll do whatever it takes to be on the ice? Well, for me, I wanted to play. Mm-hmm. Like that was it. There's, that's what I wanted to do. And you know, a little if I was sore, you know, whatever, you play through it mm-hmm. because you're still playing. You know, that's ultimately what it was about was yeah. being able to play. And there's nothing worse than you know being in the stands or six weeks because you know you're braced from your your hip to your ankle because you've just torn apart your knee and you know so that when you do go to physio you know you're maybe not as truthful with them as what you could be so you can get back in the lineup (laughs) exactly (laughs) because you want to get back in the lineup i mean you're you're part of the team but you're apart from the team yeah and you want to be feel like if you if you're not on the ice you're not performing do you feel like you're not part of the team in the same way well you're just you're missing out something. You're missing part of that experience. Yeah. And I think what a lot of players will say that one of the things they miss most when they're done hockey is the dressing room experience. And if you're not, right, then you're you know you're missing part of the experience of being on a team. Yeah, and something that I think I've been trying to think through too is that when we play the game, we also get played by the expectation. So it brings in the notion of what what does a seventeen thousand people in a rank. Yeah due to one and mm-hmm. men certain men would say i'm not going to fight at home because if i lose at home there's a shame that's magnified because i'm at home in front of my fans mm-hmm. so they would choose to fight more on the road mm-hmm. with the embarrassment and the shame 
wouldn't be as as intense. Someone would say. So uh, you, you think like that while you're playing, like you're cognizant of the people who are watching, and you might play differently depending. Mm-hmm. Well, just the other night in Montreal, um, home fans were booing Carey Price or jeering him, right, in a night that he wasn't having. So the pressure mm-hmm. that they mm-hmm. have to live through must, like, can any of us really relate? Because yeah. you've got twenty one thousand people critiquing you at work. I mean, just think of your own experience if someone comes into one person comes in to watch you while you're at work. Mm-hmm. You know, you're a little bit. You want to make sure that you've got everything dialed. Mm-hmm. Well, that's twenty one thousand people, and you're doing it forty times. You know, yeah. in the span of six months, that mm-hmm. the pressure that those guys must have to deal with would mm-hmm. be. Well, that's back to your guy on the plane, right? Yeah. 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 Well, it, and, and also I think just it kind of made me think about when when Don Cherry was. It was a real intense time where he'd be very critical on European players and continuously mm-hmm. berating them about their soft game, et cetera, et cetera. There's a bunch of young men who came over from Europe who played in the Ontario Hockey League. They actually used social media to kind of withstand the onslaught. So this constant barrage of this guy telling us that we have to play this way, and they started to question themselves, like, what are we doing here? Mm-hmm. And they would say, these guys are a bunch of Neanderthals. Like, they would describe your... North American hockey players <laughs> as Neanderthal cavemen, mm. and they actually hooked up through social media. Said, "No, we're okay. We got to stay together." So they actually built bonds mm. as a way to, you know, repel this incessant diatribe mm. against the way they were being perceived. That's fascinating. That's like the brotherhood you were speaking about before, but it's sort of brotherhood within the larger brotherhood. Yeah. To withstand the pressures of the toxic masculinity yeah. kind of yeah. pressure. Yeah, it's yeah. yeah. interesting. in Europe, I think. When you think of playing hockey and elsewhere, again, this is a possibility, how we play it in North America. Yeah. There's other possibilities <laughs> that Europe, I think, you know, European bigger rinks, mm-hmm. uh, bigger rinks, fewer games or less games. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't mm-hmm. think there's necessarily the history of Rock'em Sock'em Hockey mm-hmm. that we have mm-hmm. in North yeah. America, right? Mm-hmm. You know, Don Cherry made a whole career out of it. But I mean, you go all the way back to the earliest games that were played, and you know, there was always an undercurrent of violence. Mm-hmm. You know, our games now that we play here in 2019, like the, it looks nothing like the game that was played, you know, 100 years ago. I mean, not to romanticize this, but I grew up on an outdoor rink play, and that's when the play, the adults weren't in the play, mm-hmm. and we played differently. Differently, how? We worked it out. People didn't usually take penalties. We didn't wear equipment. We'd spend hours at the rink. Mm-hmm. I go in to play competitive hockey, and now there's adults shaping mm-hmm. and forming mm-hmm. the rules. They're not asking me what I think. <laughs> they're actually, I'm living up to the image that they're aspiring, really articulated. But mm-hmm. when we go to, on the outdoor rink, I spent hours there getting along, and we'd have, you know, 10 guys against 10 guys, and you just take the puck. Mm-hmm. You're being played in a different. You're playing differently. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I think we can still see that. Um, you know, just here in Brandon, the the sticks and pucks mm-hmm. sessions that they have the sports books, yeah, and kids just playing hockey. Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. There's no referees, no rules, no mm-hmm. adults. Mm-hmm. But it's funny how at the end everybody enjoyed the experience. You know, and there was no major conflict, and any mm-hmm. conflict was re- resolved. Yeah. You know, pretty much with the you know the next turn of the skate or whatever, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, and every time you score a goal, you'd say, "I'm so and so," like I'm yeah. Wayne Gretzky. You're, mm-hmm. you're the goal scorer. Yeah. Now, one guy I interviewed said he had these aspirations to be a third, fourth line enforcer. They oh. all want to be, the you know, scoring yes. goals and celebrating and high five. That was that's the image that mm-hmm. we want to aspire. But 
it becomes a livelihood, it becomes a job. At mm-hmm. the next level, they couldn't make it doing that role. Mm-hmm. So then they found a different role yeah. to perform. Right? And there's all mm-hmm. these fans keeping them in that role too, right? Mm-hmm. If you're not... Yeah, they, they read the papers, they hear the media, oh, they, they're not used to it. Now with social media yeah, too. They know. Yeah, they yeah. you know. We all aspire to be at the top of that, you know, that hierarchy, mm-hmm. but you know, not all of us can do it. I mean, the NHL right now is, what, the 600-odd best in the world, and there's way more than 600 people playing hockey. Mm-hmm. So yeah, and, you know that's it's interesting too that when I there's a guy I played junior with he had made Philadelphia he was part of his thing when he came into Calgary I went to see him and he was about 21 years old and I was going to see and I said how's it how's it in the NHL thinking this must be an awesome <laughs> he lifestyle made it. he says you know I'm really not enjoying it and I said what do you, what do you mean like you're 21 you're a millionaire what's not to like. He said, they want me to wear two capes on the ice. They want me to be a meathead. And it's against my constitution. And if I continue to do that, I'm going to lose my soul. And I had heard many athletes say that, this notion of soul. So you can just feel what it would like to live. Doing, and he was six foot four, 230 pounds. So you're framed within a body. You're framed within a particular way you need to play. And he was a gifted junior, like a good hands and a skater. Could have been otherwise, I think. The uh, GM calls me in the office and says, listen, we don't want you to be that person anymore. He says, by that time, I had lost my confidence to play any other way. How t- like, you know, and you've got to live that. Like, what's mm-hmm. it like to that lived experience of a, of a pro hockey player? Mm-hmm. Yeah, you, you, get, you get pigeonholed and, you know, how do you get out of it? How do you change people's perception of you if you don't get the opportunity? You change that at the risk of your glamorous lifestyle. Mm-hmm. I mean, you're flying everywhere. You only work a few hours a day, you know, officially. And you get, you're cashing in a giant paycheck. So mm-hmm. if all of a sudden you want to change who people see you or what your perceived position in the hierarchy is, mm-hmm. you're putting all of that at risk. Mm-hmm. You know, and that, is that really a reality for some of these guys? Just like everyone else, you know, they're going to have family obligations and, you know, they're trying to set themselves up because... Yeah, and it brings in, it begs the question to me that we often see fighting is consensual. I think what Paul just said, it, it brings that into question. How mm-hmm. consensual is it mm-hmm. if you if you feel boxed into yeah, the role? pressure. Yeah. yeah. So this idea, I think it's a bit of a it's a bit of a myth that two men agree to this. It, Maybe neither of them do. I think we can. I think in some instances we can say that they agree to it simply because there's an understanding that this is what they're expected to do. Right? Mm. So you have two mm-hmm. actors. I go, wow. I guess we're going to do this. Yeah, let's do it. I guess that resignation. And we also got to look at not only what you're expected to do, you know, from management, but your teammates, the fans, mm-hmm. you know, maybe in some cases your family. Like, who knows what all the, the push-pull factors for this mm-hmm. type of behavior are. And, right? yeah, you know, and further to that, what some of the athletes would talk to, they would take some of the traits that they would learn on the ice into the boardroom. So mm-hmm. I'm thinking, so now there's this notions of patriarchy, not only leaving within the context of an arena it now extends beyond that community they would mm-hmm. take these and i'm not i don't want to vilify hockey because i think there are many things that i've learned that i'm glad mm-hmm. that i was i embrace certain things but it becomes toxic and certain uh, hyper masculine traits ex- go out the bounds so men committing violent acts carrying themselves in particular ways that extend beyond the confines of a rank well that's what we were seeing in the news right like mm-hmm. uh, i think uh if you talk to most hockey players and ask them to look at, you know, the big picture of their life in hockey, I would suspect that the vast majority are going to find something that they've enjoyed throughout the game and that they would never change, not for anything. Like, I know my, I would never want to change what I did um, because, it, you know, it's shaped who I am now. 
I mean, I think a lot of players, that when they get to the point, you know, when all's said and done and they, their body is broken down because it does happen, you know, they can't play the game anymore, they'll look back and I think you'll always find someone that's got fond of them. Yeah, and it, I think it's always this and that. It's yeah. never just a zero sum. But some of these athletes, one, one guy said to me, you know, I've never really thought, and this was a college-educated former pro saying, I've never really thought how hockey had shaped me as a, as a husband, a partner, a father, a friend. I'm thinking that's how it's just part of what we do, yeah. <laughs> right? Yeah. I, I just I can't, I play that over and over in my mind mm-hmm. that you spent your lifetime mm-hmm. doing something, mm-hmm. and it, it has its way with you, mm-hmm. and you weren't conscious of that person beyond the game. Yeah, like I think of my yeah, of the closest friends that I have, the vast majority are guys that I played hockey with. And it shapes you for better or worse, right? Like yeah. teamwork, right. camaraderie, all of the all good of things that, too. Sure. Yeah. yeah, and, and then the same like athlete said, "I cannot go. They have um, charity games. I can't go to the charity games because it brings up too much sting." Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, Fifty-five had a great career in the NHL, mm-hmm. but he's still living through these things. Mm-hmm. And that's the part that really interests me: is who do we become because of the experience that we have, right, for mm-hmm. good or ill. Right, right. It's normal right. bad news, obviously. Right. Yeah. But it still lingers, right? Thank you for listening to the Research Connection podcast. You can visit our website for links to everything that was mentioned in the episode and for more Research Connection content at www.brandonu.ca slash bu-cares. Be sure to rate and subscribe so you can stay up to date with current research that impacts your community. Thank you.